<laughs> the kids. I just want to share with you as we do a little bit of transition moment from the Lord's table to Ephesians chapter five. Just sometimes I like to lighten things up a little bit. One of my sons, the five-year-old, the first time I've seen him fully clothed was uh, between services today. We have, we're all in a, a kind of a new baby time in the Roseland house. And um, you do a lot to get everybody here. Um, I brought the three um, able to more address their own clothing and she'll bring the three that can't and uh, works out. So I see the five-year-old today, pretty sure he dressed himself mostly. It's definitely his plan. I can't believe how well-coordinated it was. I'm, I'm assuming you're helping a lot with that. But he had his, the most important thing I noticed was he had his belt on. You know, the kids are all excited about superheroes and gadgets and stuff. So he had his belt on in the proper place through the belt loops. Again, I know you helped out with that. But he had his New Testament that he stole off my desk because my desk is a place for kids to steal things off of. He had his New Testament stuffed in the front right here. And he had a little sewn notebook stuffed in the pocket here. In the, not in the pocket, but in the belt here. And then he had a pin in his vest. Yeah, he was wearing a vest. It was all coordinated. And he, he was here, he was ready to study. He was coming to church and he wanted to show me first thing. And now he has the signature marks of a messed up plastic communion service. He's got grape juice on his pants. That kid, that is a pastor's kid. Somebody take a picture. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. We were having a good time here at Preston City Bible Church. And um, I thank God for bringing us here. I thank God for the... Um, the, uh, the time we've been able to spend with you and the many years uh, that he has planned, however many years he has planned for us to continue to serve here with you. And I uh, love you very much. And I was taught from a very young age that a pastor demonstrates his love for his congregation by teaching them the word of God. That's right. Doing what I want to do most ends up being the way I can love you best. Doing what I want to do most is the way I can love you best. And I reinforced, I reinforced that idea or actually learned its origin when I worked with you through 1 Corinthians not too long ago. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you have a list of spiritual gifts and the, the theology of spiritual gifts because the Corinthians, the knuckleheads of the New Testament, they think that speaking in tongues is the most important thing because it's the flashiest. And it means that if you don't know Russian, you can speak Russian and praise God in Russian. That's what tongues was. It was not gibberish. It was never gibberish. Angels don't speak in gibberish. Most of the time they speak Hebrew. Sometimes they speak Greek. That's what the Bible shows you. They speak in language and communicate meaning because they're personal beings like us, intelligent personal beings. So when Paul says the, the, the tongues of angels, he's not talking about gibberish. But again, we take our experience and our thing, and then we try to read it into the Bible, and that's backwards. But in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul teaches about spiritual gifts. They were confused. Paul says you should seek the teaching gifts. You should see, seek the revelatory gifts. And tongues is last. Now, that's, that's early church theology for what, what tongues is, what the miraculous gifts are, what, what's the real focus. Seek after prophecy and teaching where the word is so that you can think God's thoughts, so you can do what God wants. And so now we, we have something they didn't have. We have the Bible. Paul reinforces this again in chapter 14. It's the same discussion all the way from chapter 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. But in chapter 13, there's this interesting digression. 
1 Corinthians 13. Most people don't know much about the Bible, but they've heard 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind. This is a long digression on love. And what is so great is to memorize a couple of verses and think about them and ponder them and reflect on them and, and all that and learn what they mean. But then look at them in their context. Paul is talking about how the Corinthians, in their emphasis of flashiness, of what they think are, are, are flashy spiritual gifts, and they're impressed with, always impressed with the wrong things because they think like the world, because they don't think uh, God's thoughts, they think worldly thoughts and try to superimpose that on Christianity. Sounds familiar. Because they're doing this thing with um, spiritual gifts, Paul has to make a correction and say, none of these things are any good without love. The point is love. Christian agape. And what do we mean by that? Too often, preaching on love has been dismissed as a call to Christian family affection. Phileo. Christian family affection. You're born of the same Heavenly Father that I'm born of. We're growing up together in the same household of the faith. So we have this filial family affection, which you need. I want to foster it. I want to stimulate it. You are in the same household. Absolutely. But agape is not family affection. You can express agape in this way. One of the things people need is phileo. You better hold that baby. You better hug that kid. You better come alongside that new believer and, and encourage and listen and promote God's interests in their lives because in, a, in an affectionate way. But agape is something much more mature. It's something much more uh, challenging. In fact, you need God, the Holy Spirit, to bring it forth in you. Agape love is thinking what God wants for the other person and then acting on it. Thinking and wanting what God wants for them and then acting on it. You don't feel, Jesus doesn't feel like going to the cross. He's like, oh, I feel so, so compelled to go to the cross. Father, let this cup pass from me. But he loves his father and he's after what his father wants. So he chooses to act on it and humbles himself to the point of the death of the cross in Philippians 2. So what I'm trying to, trying to in, emphasize here is that spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts are a special enablement for you to do the big thing of loving one another. Spiritual gifts are much bigger issue um, in terms of love than in terms of what am I supposed to be doing? Well, just seek to love grow in a mature way. Love by seeking God's interests on the other person's behalf. And I want to tie that concept in Paul and spiritual gifts in the Christian life of Paul to, which we have in Ephesians 4, by the way, to the mission that Jesus gave us. The mission. What's the mission? If he most clearly stated in Matthew chapter 28, make disciples of the nations. And then you have two ordinances that we, we note from the Bible, baptism and the Lord's table. He commands that you do this. One of the ordinances is mentioned right there in the Great Commission. Make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, by teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you, by teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you. One thing he commanded is the Lord's table. But what's the big stuff that Jesus commanded? Love one another as I've loved you. And this we know love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also gave himself as a substitute for us. A sacrifice to God, and as an offering, and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. 
There's your summary relationship effect. If I really connect to God as my father and Christ as my savior and exemplar, then as a believer, I need to be imitating God in this self-giving, this self-sacrificial love. Well, this gets us into our discussion in Ephesians 5. Remember, Ephesians breaks nicely into two big pieces. Chapters 1 through 3 are the privileges of the body of Christ, the privileges of the church. Chapters 4 through 6 are the practices of the church. That little outline doesn't mean you understand all of Ephesians. That gives you some file cabinets to hold all the content of Ephesians as you work through it. Context is very important to understand what's going on. And in the context of Ephesians 5, 18, our verse will begin with, we have the command to walk, to take care how we walk, to take care of your walk, that you walk correctly, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time for the days are evil. So not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Not mystically intuiting the will of the Lord, but to really know it, to really know it. Let me illustrate verse 17 of Ephesians 5, and then we'll dive into the filling of the Spirit. Do you plan your day? When do you plan your day? Some of you plan your day at, at you know, 5 in the morning or 4 in the morning as your start. Some of you plan it in the evening before, and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about planning a day. Guess which category I'm in. In a way, I need to know specifics and make a plan. But in a way, I need to know generally, what are we doing with our lives? What is my life's mission? Jesus gives it to you. Go make disciples by teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you. By, by an evangelism process ending in baptism and then a teaching process that goes on for the rest of life. And what that teaching process does is it makes the people you're discipling become disciples. And then they make more disciples and they make more disciples. Now, that's the general sense. So the question you're making when you're planning your day, your week, your month, your year, God, how will you make me part of your mission of making disciples? How am I to accomplish this? Totally different way of thinking about your life from how Americans tend to think. All people tend to, nobody thinks this way. We all think I've got to feed the family or I have to pay the bills. That's the first thing. No, 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 that's not the first thing. That's one of the things. First thing is, God, how are you going to use me to make disciples? What in my day, in my life, will I organize? And what happens is, yes, you have to get up at whatever time to go to work, at whatever time to, to, to put food on the table. That's part of the day's plan, right? But I'm, it's under, that is under the making of disciples. How does that relate to making disciples? Well, we're told to, to work hard with our hands, to have food for ourselves and our family, and then something to share with those in need. First Ephesians chapter 4. Right? Uh, don't steal any longer, but, uh, but work hard with your hands. We're told if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. So we want to be right in that way. We want to support the ministry of the gospel. We have to have resources to add resources to that effort. So one way we do it is we work, we receive a wage, we give to the ministry, to the effort, to the work. We're not giving to the church. We're not giving to the pastor. We're giving to the Lord. But for what? We are advancing the gospel ministry. We're trying to put our resources. And so by giving, we make disciples. That's the idea. That's why, that's why you give. 
But I'm just saying, if you'll think about how to organize your life and make the most of the time, you have to first say, what are we doing with our lives? We're making disciples. Everybody, not Pastor Dave, everybody, we're making disciples. Well, you're not doing it the same exact method that I'm using. You, You can't necessarily all take the time to go learn to parse Greek verbs and then learn their syntactical value and see how meaning is construed. Like, we need that. But that's not even probably the main effort. The teaching of the word so that you can do what it says in your specific life. So what I'm saying is everybody's got their cut. You've got your spiritual gift. You've got your way you're supposed to function. We're all cells in the same organ. The organ is this little church family. The organ is part of the body of Christ. And the whole thing is this thing God is arranging. We'll never have a meeting. We'll never have a banquet or a big convocation where the church all gets together until the first meeting. That's how it always works. You never have a meeting till the first meeting. And the first meeting of the body of Christ will be together with the Lord in the clouds at the conclusion of God's construction project of this, this building. We will see the whole thing. We'll all be together in the same place with the same Christ when he catches us up to be with him. And we don't know when that is, but it's any moment. It's today or it's a thousand years from today. But when it is, that's our first get together. See, we're not supposed to be worried about getting together with the different organs. God's doing that. He's building something. Now we do share, we, co- we cooperate. We have, we have fellowship with, with believers in other bodies. I'm just other organs of the church, of the body of Christ. I'm just saying that's not the, the, the priority. The priority is you and I are supposed to be making disciples, not of me, not of any church, but of the Lord Jesus Christ by teaching them to keep, to obey, to hear and learn and do all that he commanded. And so there is an obedience factor. It is the obedience of a Christian in faith, empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. And I stand here as a, an heir of a wonderful teaching tradition of the Bible. I stand here as the heir of those who have gone before me. I stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say, to tell you that the power to do good the power to make disciples, the power to fulfill all that God expects of me as I plan my day and my week and my year, the power to even make the plan is supplied by God himself, the third person of the Trinity who indwells me and you and all of us who trust in Christ, but he indwells us in order to fill us, to characterize us with that word of Christ. And so what I'm trying to show you is the spiritual life of the believer is designed for a functional effect of the mission he's given us of making disciples. And he wants us to work together in that effort as a, as, a, as a family, as a church family. He wants us to work together in that with the various gifts he's given us. But that mission, that mission is empowered. That mission has a means. It has a right way of going about it and a right power. And I think sometimes we've emphasized the power without looking at the mission, or sometimes the church will talk about the mission or what are we supposed to be doing without talking about the how and the right way. And is this even, can we even do the mission outside of the power Uh, he's proposed? I say no. Let me try very briefly to illustrate to you why I think the apostle Paul is the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he says, and why we're studying the Christian life of Paul. We're Christians. We're not Pauline Christians. We're Christians. If you want to turn, I'm I'm holding my place in Ephesians 5, some of our most well-traveled biblical uh, teaching 
over to the end of the book of Luke, which we recently studied in, uh, on mission, studying the last of Jesus' teachings. And chapter 24 is the story, as Luke recounts it, of the resurrection, and it's the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote long chapters the way we've broken them up. It's 53 verses in chapter uh, 24. And I want to go to the last words just prior to Jesus' departure to be at the right hand of the Father, where he physically, in his resurrection body, the, the humanity of Christ. You can't put uh, uh, the... the deity of Christ in a box geographically he's omnipresent but in the humanity of Christ and this gets into the mystery of the hypostatic union the union of the two natures in one person but um, the humanity of Christ is physically in the third heaven at the right hand of the father that's that's where we're supposed to think of him in Colossians 3 but look at uh, Luke 24 44 he says now uh, now he said to them these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now in our little last bite of Jesus teaching in Luke, the last thing he says before he ascends, the way Luke portrays it, there's a lot of things that were said, but the way Luke grabs it, notice he just told us what the Old Testament is. He just told us what scripture says. We just told us where the authority is. It's in the prophets, Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. That's the that's the Tanakh. That's, the, that's what we call the Old Testament, the way we count it, 39 books. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. All right, so we have a reference to the ministry of the gospel that, that Matthew says, go and make disciples of the nations. Luke says that repentance would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things, of what I've already taught you. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he departs, he ascends up into heaven. He leads them out. And that's the last teaching, the way Luke presents it in the first book we have from Luke of the mission. The last thing we have is I'm sending you the promise of my father. Well, what does that mean? I think Luke and the inspiration of the spirit, given his probably his personality and his personal writing style, I think he asks you to stay tuned to read Acts 1. Luke book two, because the last words before the ascension are, behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you're to stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power. What's the promise of the father? Clothing with power from on a high. What, what exactly? Let, let, let me read on. What else does he tell most excellent Theophilus? So we go to Acts chapter one. The theme in the book of Luke and Acts is Luke 24 and Acts 1 because he's talking about the same event, same writer, same Christ, same hearers, same audience, same conversation. Listen to what he says. In verse 7, uh, verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him saying, Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know 
times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. Uh-oh, that's Luke 24. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the promise of the Father, that he would send the Holy Spirit, read it in the upper room discourse, which we all know is John chapters 13 through 17. I know there are different labels you can put to those pieces, but that one block I call the upper room discourse because it starts in the upper room, ends with the high priestly prayer, and it is the seed. It is the teaching that will be the seed that the New Testament grows out of, including the book of John. The apostles are equipped that night to teach, to teach and to understand what's coming after he leaves. It is the whole thing about the spiritual life, abiding in Christ, the Holy Spirit. So the promise of the Father in verse 7 of Acts 1, uh, verse 8 you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I'm trying to point out the thesis for this morning that there is this doctrine of the power for the Christian to live his life and there's the doctrine of the mission for the Christian that is your life. And you don't want to divorce these two things. In teaching the disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we read in Acts 2, it starts the church, begins the baptism of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we're all baptized by the Spirit into Christ. And we're all made to drink of the same Spirit. That's the indwelling of the Spirit. And here we're to be filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5. I'm trying to show you that all this teaching on the spiritual life has a functional purpose in the mission that God has given us. If you find that your evangelism efforts are, are kind of lagging, well, the Holy Spirit isn't lagging. He doesn't lack strength, power, ability. He can't, he doesn't fall short in, in giving you perspective. We fall short in paying attention to the word. We fall short in discipline about time in the word so that we can be filled by the spirit with that word. Be certainly influenced by the spirit so that we say God's words to one another and to God. As we see in Ephesians. I'm, what I'm trying to show you as we introduce the doctrine of the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not so that you have some sort of ecstatic feeling. It's not so that you and I feel belonging or, or warmth or any of those things. It's great to feel belonging and warmth. And, but that's not what the filling of the Spirit is. The filling of the Holy Spirit is that power of God through his word, which he's taught you, expressing itself through, the, through your character, through what you want and what you say and what you do, through, through who you choose to be and indeed who God enables you to be. It is the saturation of God's word empowered by God's spirit. That's what the filling of the spirit is driving at when we read Ephesians chapter five. So let's look at it. If you turn in your Bibles with that little introduction of the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit to equip the disciples to make disciples, to be on mission. Let's go to Ephesians chapter five. And look at verse 18. We had the summary, know what the will of God is in verse 17. Do you know what the will of God is? He doesn't mean meditate in emptiness until an idea occurs to you. That's mysticism. That's not Christianity. He means know the word. And in so knowing it, because you know God and you're talking to him in this real relationship where you talk to God in prayer, he talks to you in the word, that you know how it applies. You know what to do with the charge of racism. 
Racism is the most powerful charge today to get any agenda across, anything people will swallow anything as long as you won't say I'm racist. You and the Lord, and according to the word, should know what to do with that. We have had an answer for racism since Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God made them uh, in his image, male and female. In Genesis 1, 26 and 28, we have always known what to do with racism. Man has his value and his identity as one created in God's image. Figure out what a human being is and you have dealt truly with racism. Well, well no, no, it's more about culture and cultures in, in conflict. Yeah, right. You, you keep reading Genesis 11 the segregation of, human, of the human race into languages, families, clans, which results in cultures. And that was a judgment on man because of man's universal rebellion against him in Genesis 6 and Genesis 11. We have the answer to this. Your cultures are gonna clash. And the only solution to that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And you're not gonna be able to rearrange the furniture. So here's what happened. Everybody that says Black Lives Matter today, and joins this movement of Black Lives Matter, as though that's new information, is buying, is swallowing a premise that most of you probably don't believe. Most of you probably don't believe, before someone said that, that our country thinks black lives don't matter. But the minute we say, this is the new thing, and we're gonna let everyone know this is the, this is the word, we're accepting the idea that black lives don't matter. And we're canceling the last 100 years of American history. There's always, Satan's, Satan's efforts always have a little bit of lie with a lot of truth. Black lives do matter, but not in their blackness or their whiteness or their or brownness. It's not about color. It's about human lives. And there's a problem in the combination of cultures that are different in their values. And this is always a precursor, if you watch human history, to war. And that's a consequence of human sin. The cross is the answer to human sin. And I'm not saying you're gonna stop war by preaching the gospel. I'm saying we're not really here for the, the, the geopolitical. We're here for the spiritual and Christ. And so go, go preach Christ. By the way, those advancing the movement called Black Lives Matter in your country those advancing that movement, it's directly opposed to what we're talking about in the mission of the gospel, directly opposed to it. And we know it is because of what they've said in their origin. We are trained Marxists, they've said, that if you know, if you learn what that means, a lot of people today are like, well, what's wrong with that? Well, trained Marxists, what does that mean? And fair enough, why would you have even been taught what that is and what you should think about it? If your parents didn't teach you, you're not gonna learn it in your culture. Understand the beginning of Marxism is atheism. No God. You can't allow God into the equation. That's very important because it drives everything else. And no one hears Marxism and says atheism, but that's what it is. And when Marxism becomes the moral norm, so does atheism. Religion becomes the faith, uh, Christianity, I should say, becomes immoral. It becomes the wrong thing culturally. And now you're going to be an outlaw opposed to the new cultural morality, just like the early church, just like the persecuted church in Marxist communist countries. 
You don't want to be a Christian in Vietnam. I mean, if that's what God calls you to, then be that. But you don't want to suffer the persecution that they suffer. It's hard on the Christians in the Islam, Islamic dominated world. It's, it's life and death. And so my point is, when we say black lives matter, we are unknowingly, in some, some cases, we've tried to say it, we're saying Marxism veiled with a, 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 a campaign against racism, understand, police brutality. Marxism is really driving this. And when you learn what these other, what else they're saying, it's very Aldous Huxley. They're not just saying brave new world. They're not just saying uh, atheism. They're saying no divine institution number two and number three. These people have explicitly said it's, it's women, um, dark-skinned from African extraction, who are the, the founders, I mean, some of them, are trained Marxists and, pardon the expression, lesbians. Which means women that use women for the purpose of men, according to Romans 1 whose objective, state objective, is the destruction of the moral norm of the nuclear family. Now, some of you hear nuclear family like the family that explodes. <laughs> the family that's, the, what is the nuclear family? It means a, a father and a, a husband and wife start a family, a man and woman in God's ordained design of marriage. And so we're not just opposed to God, we're opposed to God's institutions of husband and wife and parents and children. When you see Black Lives Matter today as a, as a sign, as a message, this is, the, this is the, the, the heart driving this statement. And so I can attack it on the, the, the slogan itself. Everyone already believes that. Those that don't are on the fringe. They're not the mainstream. We do not have a mainstream culture, especially in our law enforcement, that doesn't believe Black Lives Matter. Especially in our law enforcement. The Bible is, in other words, a wholly other way of thinking about life. But those that don't believe that the Bible should at some point be able to spot the stitches on this slow curveball. This is not a very hard thing that someone says, you're a racist if you don't say our, our slogan. Well, who's putting out the slogan? People against the family, against God, against freedom of the individual. Here's the last thing I want to say about the culture in which you live. It's the time to preach on this just a little bit in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 is talking about spiritual gifts as an individual for the function of the person and the collection. We have you walking with God in your personal life. You be filled by the Spirit and then how you talk to one another, as we'll see, right? You be filled by the Spirit and then how you choose to speak in the power of the Spirit. That I can't speak for your voice. You've got to use your voice. You see what I mean? It's the individual and how the Holy Spirit works individually in building fellowship in the collective, in the group. Every philosophy is going to have to deal with the one and the many. The one and the many. Here's what you got in a, a, a Judeo-Christian worldview founded country here. Was we said, the many must never terrorize or, 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 or tyrannize over the individual. That's what this, we're not a direct democracy. We're not designed to be a direct democracy because we looked at history. And we said, it's very easy for the people to tyrannize and take away the liberty of the one. How are you going to fight the 350 million to live how you want to live for yourself? That's, this is the origin of our country. And those that want to talk about the collective will never talk about the freedom of the individual, of conscience, of speech, 
of the right to bear arms, of all the things that we said are inalienable rights endowed by our creator as individuals. This is what our country was founded on, was this sense that yes, the tyranny of the one with all the power of the military, the monarchy over the many in the group, that's one type of problem. But there's another problem that's very possible. And you can read about this in the reasoning in the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalists, as they're trying to come up with a country, with a collection of people. These, these men, these flawed, infallible, short-sighted, sinful men said, you must never have the, what they call the tyranny of the majority. That's the two wolves voting with the lamb on what's for dinner, they said. You have three persons, you have two wolves and a sheep, and they're gonna have a, an election on what's for dinner. I, I mean, if you want to take care of the sheep, then you're gonna to have to do something besides democracy, you understand. We're gonna to have to have some sort of check and balance on the majority. That's the way our country was founded. And so the more we say, people, the group, the group, the group, and the less we say, watch out for the little guy, watch out for the individual, watch out for individual civil liberties, the more the group in its French Revolution emotional fury is going to be able to just run over the individual. And this is what's interesting about the mob. Robespierre, Maximilien Robespierre was actually guillotined by the French Revolution. He stirred up a mob and tried to control it. You can't control the mob in its emotional fervor. Eventually, that's what killed him. In going for the liberté, liberté, égalité, fraternité, e equality meant equality of outcomes. Everybody gets the same chicken in the same pot. We're going to force everyone to have the same. No matter how much you worked for it, no matter what you did, you get the same as everyone else. Well, that turns out to be unfair depending on if you didn't work the same as everyone else. That's not fair. But they're trying to come up with this idea of equality of outcomes. And when they tried to force this, this loose, equal outcomes, Marxism is what Marx would later call it, on the masses. What you end up with is this emotional fervor where the mob doesn't know what it's doing. And the people don't really know what they're tearing apart the, the police for. They, tear, they tore apart the police. They, they were ripping people to shreds in the streets. And eventually, because of some rumors, the reign of terror eats the founder of the reign of terror, Robespierre. Because the individual is not protected from the mass. And the mass is not being protected from the oligarchy, the few. And what we have in our design of government is a recognition of authority, sin and humans, fallen people, broken all over the place. That's the Christian worldview. And yet they must be governed because of their fallenness and those that govern it will be sinful and fallen. And so you have to have a system that checks the power on all of these you have this Byzantine system, which the former president of our country, before he was a president, Obama said, I think in something like 2006 or five or somewhere in there, he was on a radio interview. I heard they dug up in the 2008 election cycle that our country's government is a system of negative liberties that stop the government from doing more. And progressivism means we make the government able to do more. And that's, that's the idea. So what you had is, look, look, Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 says, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the, all the people, as the world around, the Gentiles 
also walk in the futility of their mind. There's mateotes, the emptiness, the unthinking. You cannot adopt the morals, the values of the world around you. It doesn't work. What we should be doing is teaching the Bible and applying it to the situation so that we can spot where the errors are. But, but truly, the Gentiles walk in futility of mind. That's the first thing. So the movements, all the social justice stuff, this is all just a manifestation of futility of mind. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they haven't become callous of giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Before we were fighting the cultural war of uh, how racist are we, and which is largely driven by fascists claiming to be anti-fascists. Before we were fighting this war in the streets of our cities, and it's, and it's nothing good is coming from this unless rule of law is reinforced and the country says, no, we will be uh, a people of laws, which we're gonna decide that in this, this year, this election cycle. Before there was that, we were talking about what was marriage. Before there was that, we were talking about what is the government responsible for in the bedroom? Where's the, the constitutional dictates on the right to freedom versus privacy? And what about the unborn and all that? This was all related. Abortion is a product of fornication. That's where this comes from. Abortion is not a product of marriage. It's a product of fornication, illicit perverted sex outside of marriage. That's what it, so it always goes back to what he ends up with. They've given themselves over to sensuality and the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And in, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says to get away from porneia, from, from, from fornication, you're gonna have to leave the earth because everyone's doing it. So I'm just saying you can see different aspects of the same critter. You're dealing with the world. And it's expressing itself in every institution in the evangelical Christ, Christian church. It's expressing itself. because we've lost our, we've taken our finger out of the Bible. Let's put it back in Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine and which is a waste. Dissipation from uh, verse 15, wise, uh, verse 16, wisdom is um, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So not wasting your life with alcohol or any other substance. People wanna get into the debate about marijuana and all the other things, okay? Let's talk about Netflix binging. Let's talk about wasting our time in any way when we're supposed to be on mission. There's a time for leisure. There's a time for rest. Rest is, a, I think, a subset, or leisure is a subset of rest. But work is a different category than leisure, but it's all on mission. That's the thought. So don't be drunk with wine. Doesn't mean you can never touch a drop of alcohol uh, and be a Christian. It is not a Levitical code or something about, against the, the alcohol is unclean or something. It's that you don't waste your time by being given over to the, to the influence of this. It's a waste of time function. So you have to, we gotta think biblically. There are people that will say, no, this means you're unclean if you touch it. And I think that misses the point, especially in context when he says, but be filled by the spirit. You don't want to give yourself over to anything that will so characterize you that you're filled by it, that you're saturated by it, that it is having this influence that now characterizes you. You become a function of whatever it is, alcohol, whatever it is. You could do this with sports. Now, alcohol is different because it does a chemical thing to your physical body. 
And there's a mysterious interface between your body and your spirit, your soul, spirit, your, your, that connection, the physical and the spiritual. And so this thing attacks your brain and your brain is where you do your thinking, but the heart is also the heart of the mind. And so that's where a lot of this interface goes. I mean, it does. The body includes the brain and you're supposed to think in your spirit. And your brain is not your spirit, but there's a connection, I'm just showing you. So you're, you do things to your brain, you're directly attacking the place where you're to be characterized by the spirit of God. Let me prove it to you. You read words using your brain and the way your eyes work with your brain. But the words that you're reading as you believe them are being processed by the spirit of God in such a way that they characterize the inner man. There's a mysterious thing that's happening that the Bible doesn't really specify. It's just saying, be filled by the Spirit. Now, I'm not gonna do it, but in Colossians 3, in verse um, 16, Paul issues a similar command. It's a third person imperative, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then it has the same effects that we're about to read in verse uh, 19 of Ephesians 5. And so listen to the two commands, be filled by the Spirit, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Be filled by the Spirit, that's passive, you let the Spirit do this. I mean, he's the one that fills you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The, the Spirit is the personal agent, the one doing whatever the, the doing is. You let it happen, you be filled by the Spirit. The word of Christ is not personal. It's not talking about Jesus as the word, it's talking about the word that teaches of him that's inspired by the Spirit and the apostles and prophets. So the Holy Spirit is the agent who is using the word to fill you, to richly dwell within you. When something fills you, it dwells in you. And so I believe it is the Spirit of God personally using the word of Christ, which he's inspired to make you characterized by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is to abide in Christ, I believe. This is the, this is the mechanical side of what Jesus says, abide in me and I in you and you'll bear much fruit in John chapter 15. This is Christian spirituality. I mentioned earlier that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. When Lewis Berry Chafer taught this in his signature course at Dallas Seminary, every student took it, the spiritual life course, based on his understanding of these things and especially 1 Corinthians chapters two and three and the book, He That Is Spiritual. Chafer would call this, when he would teach this part, he would call this the power to do good. He would talk about how Remember, the, the gospel ministry would be empowered by the Spirit. You have work to do and make disciples, but you're going to have the power of the Spirit to do it as Jesus is setting up the church age. This is, this is the mechanic, is as close as you get to mechanics of this. You take the word of Christ, it's not just dead words on a page, it's God's very thinking, and you and I have access to it because the Spirit of God strengthens us in the inner man to think his thoughts and then we're characterized, we're saturated with it. Be filled by the Spirit. The last thing I wanna say on this before we get into the effects, because the next thing is the results, is wine influences you. It does not control you, it influences you. It has its effect and then you're different because of the free reign of the sin nature, because of a lot of things that, that wine or any substance. So notice the nature of influence. What I'm trying to say is if you're filled by the Spirit and you choose to commit personal sin, and so grieve the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 4.30 says, if you are filled by the Spirit, but then you choose to commit personal sin in the moment and you grieve the Holy Spirit, I consider that, I, can, I would call that breaking fellowship with God, needing to confess our sins because he would forgive us and cleanse us and make us fit, make us, bring us back to fellowship. When you commit personal sins, it's not the Holy Spirit's fault. 
but I was filled by the Spirit. So isn't that control? Well, not in the account of you committing personal sins because we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and you will not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can't sin personally when you're walking in dependence upon the power supplied by the Holy Spirit. It's one or the other. That's Galatians 5. And I, this is all a footnote. Excuse me. This is, a, this is a survey of Ephesians, but the footnote is check out the teaching on the Christian spiritual life that we did in, I think, 2017, 2018. We went through all these passages in detail to show a composite. Um, and so a lot of this is certainly review. Now, what are the results of the filling of the Spirit? With the result that you speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is my translation. Your Bible says speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But the participle speak needs to be interpreted. And what does he mean? It's obviously the result of the filling of the spirit. Instead of slurring your speech or saying horrible things because you're that kind of drunk or being silly because you're that kind of drunk. Rather than being characterized by your flesh under the influence of alcohol, be filled by the spirit. And what do you end up with? You speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You speak the spiritual things of God to one another. In the time in which you live, I suspect Christians are always having that conversation. Is that right? It's the first time I've gone long and not known it. Sorry about that. In the time in which you live, the Christians were speaking application constantly. They're like, well, you can't really go in for all this, whatever the application is. Don't live your life in fear of the virus. Be wise, but don't be afraid. You know, that, these are all applications. Paul goes back to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, not just the application of the truth, who you're voting for in November, and, or as I like to teach people, who are you voting against in November? What are you trying to fight against? I've voted against candidates my entire life. Never really thought, oh, this is the guy that's gonna lead us into the promised land. I've always thought, who am I opposed to and how do I put <laughs> emphasis that way? But, but this doesn't speak application here. This speaks directly the word, a good word from God. with the result that you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. So how you speak to God, how you, one another, how you speak to the Lord. With the result that you give thanks at all times for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God the Father. And with the result that you submit one to another in the fear of Christ. Be filled by the Spirit with these results. Speech to men, song to God, thanksgiving to God through Jesus Christ, and humility, submitting one to another in the fear of Christ. I know I've gone long. It's communion Sunday. Sometimes that happens. Let me, let me just close with an idea because we're going to launch next time on the household code, household code, wives, how you submit to your husbands, husbands, how you love your wives, children, how you obey your parents, parents, how you train your children, slaves, or let's say today, because we don't have slavery in our country. So we're one of the few countries in world history that we can actually say, this is in our foundational documents and we don't do that here. And there's no way you could uh, have a political movement to bring this unless they tore down our foundational documents. We fought our way out of that. We don't do slavery. Other countries uh, have slavery. We don't have slavery. So what, so what are we saying? We're saying uh, uh, management and labor. He goes from, from fathers and sons to management and labor. And, it's, and he always addresses the lower authority first and then the higher authority second, wives, husbands, ch uh, children, parents, slaves, masters. And it's called the household code. It's, Genesis, it's uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through um, 
6, 9. And it is all governed by be filled by the Spirit with these effective results, the last one being humility, submit one to another. Now, some have said, see right there, submit one to another means that there's mutual submission and everybody's under each other's authority. That everybody's trying to, uh, submit means put yourself under. So you're all putting yourself under each other's authority. And so you end up with uh, husbands and wives, nobody having authority. And that's, that's called egalitarianism. You like the, that, that silliness. It's called egalitarianism and it's, it's, it's infected the evangelical world. And I suspect that the evangelical movement is probably moving towards egalitarianism in marriage. So husbands are under their wives' authority and the wives are under their husbands' authority and it's, it's mutual. I looked that up. I think uh, you end up with wives in, in authority. That's Genesis 3, verse 16. We've all seen it. It's Mrs. Olson and Mr. Olson and Little House on the Prairie. She wears a bonnet to show that she's under her husband's authority, according to 1 Corinthians 11, but she tells him exactly what to do. And he won't stand up to his wife. Good Lord, have mercy. How did you get there, Niles? How did you end up having to stand up to your wife? Well, we didn't read the Bible. Pastor didn't take us through the scriptures before we got married. And we, we did a very foolish thing. That getting married to somebody that we, uh, husband, you married someone that wouldn't follow you. Well, we're going to talk about the household code, but it's all under the power of the Holy Spirit. And that problem of mutual submission that the egalitarians propose will not work in this passage because the Lord Jesus Christ does not submit to the church's authority. And that's the illustration of marriage, the church and Christ, that's wife and husband, wives to your husbands as the church to Christ. That's the way you submit. As much as we as the church are in authority over Jesus Christ, then that's the sense in which a husband submit to their wives the authority. In other words, not at all. And yet there is submission. Christ does submit. How does he put himself under the church? Not under the church's authority. How does he place himself under? Obviously, he put on the towel, he washed their feet. He washes our feet. He cleans us up. He died for our sins. The suffering servant, that's the servant of Yahweh, ends up serving all of us, but we're not over him in authority. That's the idea that you submit. You humble yourself even to be ridiculed, hated, laughed at. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I'm not submitting to the authority of those opposed to me. I'm submitting myself for their interest in sharing Jesus Christ. And that's a totally different mindset. But this, is, this passage does take you to humility in verse 22 or 21, and then it takes you to specific expressions of that humility in all matters, those in authority, those under authority. And that's how to understand Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9. Well, read up on it. We will study together. Again, I'm one third way through my notes and we will, uh, we will <laughs> take another stab at it next Sunday in the study of Ephesians in a few Sundays. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel and the grace you've given us to share it together. Thank you for the privilege we've had to celebrate the Lord's table and proclaim his death until he comes and for the privilege we have to, uh, to be concerned for one another and the power of your spirit for your interests. 
Father, let us all grow into our spiritual gifts so that we're effective on mission. There are some, perhaps, Father, that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore don't have a relationship with you. And so we pray for them as well, everyone on our list, all the people you have in our lives, maybe even hearing my voice this morning that do not know Jesus Christ. Help them hear the words of life very clearly, that your Holy Spirit has inspired the Apostle, uh, or, or Luke to write of the Apostle Paul, when asked, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, help these words sink into all the hearts of those on our list. Help them all come to know Christ, bring about the conditions, and Father, let us see some fruit. Let us see some harvest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.